Hi, my name is Guy Masfrey, and I'm honored to be involved in reading this podcast for a recent manuscript in Aesthetic Surgery Journal from the Oculoplastic Surgery section. The article is titled, Dermal Onlay Graphs, a Rescue Procedure for Secondary Periorbital Hollows. I want to thank my colleagues who helped me with this manuscript, Dr. Yao Wing, my fellow, and uh, my associates, Raymond S. Douglas, Amy Patel, and John Holds. I'll start by reading the abstract. Uh, Background, various procedures to efface age-related lower eyelid cheek interface depression or primary periorbital hollows have been reported in the literature. Post-surgical or secondary periorbital hollows are a distinct contrary regularity that have received little such attention. Dermal only grafts, a site-specific term for autologous dermis fat grafts, have been used to treat secondary periorbital hollows for which less invasive measures have proven, have shown to be unsuccessful. Objectives. The aim of the study was to describe the surgical technique and outcomes of dermal onlay grafts for secondary periorbital hollows. Methods. A retrospective analysis of patients who underwent dermal onlay grafts for secondary periorbital hollows over a 27-month period was performed. The surgical technique and outcomes were reviewed. Results, 13 patients, 10 women and 3 men, average age 52 years, average follow-up 9 months, were included in the study. Nine patients had bilateral surgery, and all had received previous filler or fat injection or both with poor outcomes. Generally, surgical complications were minor, required minimal intervention, or were self-limiting. One patient had persistent infraorbital dysesthesia, Uh, which improved with oral tricyclic antidepressants. 11 of the 13 patients stated satisfaction with hollow effacement and outcome, the finding verified by subjective assessment by surgeon. The conclusions, dermal only graphs, yielded good results in this initial description of their utility as a rescue procedure to surgically address secondary periorbital hollows. Further, quantitative volumetric studies to validate outcome would be of value. This is a level of evidence for study. Okay, so to begin the formal paper, over the last two decades, effacement of periorbital hollows at the lower eyelid cheek interface has become a focus of aesthetic eyelid surgeons. The common methods by which this has been accomplished include the injection of hyaluronic acid gel fillers or autologous fat, transposing native eyelid fat, mid-face lifting, or a combination thereof. Reports on these procedures have focused mostly on typical age-related periorbital hollows, which have have classified as primary periorbital hollows. We have noted a specific subgroup of patients with periorbital hollows whose management options may be limited with these procedures. This includes patients who have had previous aggressive fat excision blepharoplasty without sufficient remaining fat to transpose for persistent hollows. We refer to these contour deficits as secondary periorbital hollows to distinguish them from the more common age-related primary eyelid cheek interface depressions. Many of these patients have failed due to edema, dyschromia, or inadequate correction, or refused hyaluronic acid gel filler treatment, and or achieved poor outcome or contour regularities from injected liquid fat transfer. To treat these patients, we have placed dermis fat grafts. 
uh, over the inferior orbital limb for volume augmentation. Dermis fat grafts are not new to eyelid, periorbital, or facial surgery. They have been used with great success as a volume substrate in the orbit, the eyelids, and as a posterior lamellar spacergraft in lower eyelid retraction caches. Two of us, uh, uh, myself and uh, Dr. Holds, have implanted dermis fat grafts as a cover for small to moderate exposure of orbital implants with success. Dermis fat grafts have also been used for volume augmentation in both primary and secondary facial rejuvenation surgery. In this report, we elaborate on our experience with placing dermis fat grafts, or what we call dermal onlay grafts, as a rescue procedure in selected cases of secondary eyelid cheek junction depressions when other less invasive options have shown poor utility because injected and solid fat are both variations of fat grafting for the purpose of this manuscript, we will refer to solid graft fat grafts as dermis fat grafts or dermis onlay grafts and to suction and then injected liquid fat grafts as fat transfer. We have also previously placed pearl grafts without attached dermis to augment eyelid volume. As these cases were placed specifically for periorbital hollows, they were not included in the study. The dermal onlay graft procedure and post-operative course are outlined in detail, along with surgical nuances that we feel are important for success. Now let's go on to the methods section. A retrospective chart review, June 2017 to September 2019, was performed of consecutive patients whom we had treated with dermal onlay grafts for effacement of secondary periorbital hollows. All patients are from their private practices, our, our private practices and all surgeries were performed as outpatient procedures at a licensed surgical center. Informed consent was obtained for each procedure, including an explanation that although this is a novel application for dermis fat grafting, the technique has been used successfully for decades in ophthalmic and facial plastic surgery for other orbital, facial, and eyelid defects. An institutional review board approval from the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, was obtained for the study and the review adhered to the standards of the Declaration of Helsinki and was compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Topographically, dermis fat grafts were placed in three locations. One, the nasojugal groove or tear trough. Two, the orbitomalar groove or the palpebromalar groove, lateral hollow. Or three, the entire lower periorbital hollow. That's the two locations previously. Canthal release with a swinging <clears throat> eyelid approach was used to place dermal onlygraphs in cases when deemed necessary for appropriate exposure. In each of these cases, meticulous canthal reconstruction was performed. All dermis fat grafts were harvested from the left lower quadrant to prevent post-operative scar from potentially misleading a future diagnosis of appendicitis should an acute abdomen develop. Patients who had clinically significant concurrent lower eyelid retraction had simultaneous hard palate grafts placed as posterior lamellar lower eyelid spacer grafts. Dermis fat grafts placed to the tear trough were all done so subperiosteal to prevent contour irregularities as the skin in this area is thin. For the remaining lower periorbital depressions where tissue is thicker, dermis fat grafts were placed preperiosteally. All grafts were placed dermis side up, closest to the skin. 
in preoperative discussions, it was explained to patients that a 50% improvement in hollow reduction was the goal based on our previous experience with dermis fat graft results. Subjective surgical results were evaluated photographically at a minimum of six months postoperatively, and patient satisfaction was assessed by asking patients, are you satisfied with the outcome? In, this, in the same time frame. Finally, <clears throat> uh, post-operative complications and their management was elaborated in detail. Let's move on to the surgical procedure. All procedures were performed under uh, sedation with monitored anesthesia care or general anesthesia for patient preference. The canthus, transconjunctival lower lid, and upper mid-face were infiltrated prior to incision with 2% xylocaine and 1 in 100,000 epinephrine. <clears throat> An ellipse the size, a size determined based on the measured preoperative orbital rim depressions is drawn on the left lower quadrant of the abdomen. The vertical and horizontal dimension of these depressions are identified and then doubled if bilateral surgery is, pl is planned. The ellipse is demarcated four millimeters greater than the measured defect to account for postoperative shrinkage. The skin of the donor site is hydrodissected from underlying dermis with a milliliter of the same anesthetic and two mLs of anesthetics injected into the underlying subdermal fat. A scalpel blade is used to score the skin and dermis partial thickness and then to excise the overlying epithelium and superficial dermis. It is helpful to stretch the skin with one finger of each hand to maintain the subcutaneous plane and avoid dermal perforations. Along the perimeter of the donor site, the dermis is incised to full thickness with a scalpel blade and Stevens tenotomy sitters are used to cut through the dermis circumferentially. The dermis fat graft is then removed by incising through the fat underlying the dermis. The depth or thickness of the harvest graft is subjectively assessed based on predetermined depth of the preoperative orbital hollow. The harvested dermis fat graft is placed in saline soaked gauze and the donor site is closed with layers with multiple interrupted and buried subcuticular 50PDS sutures and a running 50 nylon suture for the skin closure. Attention is, is then paid to the lower eyelids. In cases when the canthus is released, a canthotomy and cantholysis are performed. A subtarsal incision three millimeters below the tarsus is made through the conjunctiva and lower eyelid retractors across the width of the lower eyelid. These tissue layers are both engaged with a porosilk suture, traction suture, which is secured to the head drape for exposure. A preceptal dissection is carried to the orbital rim. All these are revision cases. This plane is often distorted from scarring. However, careful dissection with a Damar retractor in fairly displacing the, low, displacing the lower lid and counter traction applied with a porosilk traction suture allows creation of a safe plane to the infraorbital rim in all cases. Blank dissection with a cotton tip applicator combined with electrocautery unit dissection <clears throat> with a mode set on pure cut helps maintain the plane of the bloodless field. In cases where the tear trough is to be grafted, a subperiosteal dissection is carried to the level of and adjacent to the infraorbital neurovascular bundle. More inferior dissection is not deemed necessary because this distance below the infraorbital rim encompassed the orbital hollow in each case. Several slits are made in the elevated periosteum that will overlay the dermal onlay graft to allow vascularity of the graft. Also, when grafting the tear trough, 
fat was trimmed off the dermis to prevent necrosis and potential inflammatory response should the blood supply in this area be compromised. If added volume is needed, the graft can be folded on itself or during implantation. A preperiosteal dissection of the central and lateral periorbital halls is performed between the deepest portion of the suborbicularis oculi fat and the periosteum. Dissection proceeds inferiorly in the most, to the most distal level of the hollow in the upper midface. The lateral hollow often extends lateral to and as high as the canthus. This requires extending the dissection to these areas. When fertile periorbital hollows are addressed, a vertical slit is made in the periosteum at the transition between the sub and preperiosteal dissections to create a continued pocket for the dermal only graft. The nasal subperiosteal graft is placed first. It is trimmed to size, folded on itself if deemed necessary, and sutured internally to more inferior periosteum with an erupted 5-O-chromic suture. The superior portion of the graft falls into place and can be similarly secured with a suture or left free. Conversely, the graft can be secured with full thickness suture, double arm 5-O-chromic suture, which traverses the graft and is externalized over the skin and tied. The central lateral grafts are trimmed to size and thinned of fat as needed to provide adequate volume. A 30% overcorrection of fat is planned in each case. The graft is secured in place, fat side down towards the periosteum and dermis, dermis up towards the souf. This graft is secured like the nasal graft at the tear trough. Once the graft is implanted, the souf can be elevated and sutured over the graft to the cuff of periosteum remaining at the orbital rim and if needed, the terminal lateral preceptal orbicularis to the lateral orbital rim periosteum for additional mid-face support. The canthus is closed in the standard way. In cases where the canthus was disarticulated for exposure, a 5-ochromic partial temporary tarsorophy suture is passed intermarginally from gray line to gray line of the lateral upper and lower lids to reduce postoperative chemosis and support lower eyelid position. The suture is removed one week postoperatively. Okay, now we go on to the results section. 13 patients were included in the study, 10 women, three men with an average age of 52 years, range 41 to 66, an average follow-up of nine months, range 15 to 18, five to 18 months. All surgeries were revisional in nature because each patient had undergone previous fat reduction blepharoplasty. Nine of the 13 cases, 69% were bilateral procedures and four of the 13 cases, 31% were unilateral in nature. One patient, 8%, had tear trough grafting only. Eight patients, 62%, had isolated grafting of the lateral hollows. And the four remaining patients, 30%, had volume augmentation of the entire lower periorbital hollow. All patients had undergone previous attempts at either hyaluronic acid gel filler placement, that's 69%, 9 out of 13, or fat transfer, 4 out of 13 patients, or 31%, or both, 2 out of 13, or 15% to the lower eyelid cheek interface depressions by other providers. All the patients were dissatisfied with the outcome of these interventions because of filler-related edema, dyschromia, and poor fat retention, or lumps, bumps related to fat transfer. Of the 11 patients who had previously had filler placed for correction of hollows, eight or 73% had filler <clears throat> dissolved Adequately, adequately with hyaluronidase prior to presentation, and 3 or 37% had fillers dissolved by the authors. Of the four, four patients who had previously undergone fat transfer, two, 
had subsequent steroid injections to reduce post-grafting contrairegularities. Both these patients stated that their hollows became more severe after this intervention. 11 of 13 patients, 85%, had canthal disarticulation with reconstruction, whereas two patients, 15%, had canthal sparing surgery. In no cases was horizontal eyelid shortening um, required, as the purpose of canthal release was only for exposure. Two patients had hard palate grafts placed as a lower eyelid spacer for concurrent lower eyelid retraction. We could not determine if this adjunct aided in periorbital hollow effacement. The size of the harvested dermis fat graft varied based on degree of preoperative hollow and ranged from 25 millimeters times 12 millimeters uh, in the least significant case to 80 by 40 millimeters in the most severe case. In two cases where a tear trough graft was placed, the dermis was folded on itself for added volume. We noted that overall postoperative swelling was subjectively similar in degree and recovery time to that occurring after standard trans-eyelid mid-face lifting. Most swelling resolved in one month, but persistence of some degree of cheek swelling into month three was not uncommon. Infraorbital dysesthesia is the in the first month postoperatively occurred in three of five patients, 60%. When the tear trough hollow was addressed, and two of these patients, 66%, noted this verbally. One of these patients, at eight months after surgery, developed persistent unilateral sensory symptoms, which were treated with 50 milligrams Elevil at night with relief. One patient developed a hard nodule under the canthus overlying the tail end of the dermis fat graft. This resolved with one injection of 0.3 ml uh, fluorouracil, 50 milligrams per ml. Clinically significant chemosis more than two weeks after surgery was present in three of 13 patients, 23%. In all cases, this resolved conservative measures, lubrication and topical medications by five weeks after surgery. Patients stated satisfaction with their procedure in 11 of 13 cases, that's 85%. A subjective improvement of hollow effacement was also noted by us in the same 11 patients. The two patients who were not satisfied with surgery both felt the degree of volume replacement in their hollows was not to their 50% expectation. Surgeon assessment was similar with an approximate 25% subjective volumetric enhancement noted. No patient complained of the scar from the dermis fat graft harvest site. Okay, finally, we'll go to the discussion. The lower eyelid and cheek are an aesthetic unit whose ideal and youthful transition should be smooth with concavity above and a convexity below. Normal involution, which involves both volume loss and tissue descent, Leads to, a characteristic, leads to characteristic changes in this topography. These changes typically manifest a disruption of the smooth lower lid cheek interface, leading to variable degrees of depression or periorbital hollows over the general area of the inforbital rim. Facial aesthetic surgeons have developed a variety of surgical and non-surgical paradigms involving injecting filler or fat or surgically transposing orbital fat from above or elevating the midface from below to manage these hollows. These reported techniques primarily address normal age-related contour regularities or primary periorbital hollows. Although procedure efficacy has been validated with primary periorbital hollows, what is unknown and relatively unstudied is what to do with patients who have what we refer to as secondary or postoperative periorbital hollows. In these instances, patients have had previous fat reduction, lower blepharoplasty, leaving little residual fat to transpose. In addition, many have had filler placement or fat transfer as a primary fix. Although these procedures may work, 
complications such as edema and dyschromia with filler injection and contraregulities or inadequate results are not infrequent fat transfer. The purpose of the study is to suggest a rescue procedure for patients with secondary periorbital hollows, especially for those whom less invasive options have failed. The 13 patients in the study met the criteria to evaluate this problem, and all of them had undergone previous subtractive lower blepharoplasty, and all were dissatisfied in terms of the stated complications of filler or fat injections or both. There are several distinct characteristics of secondary periorbital hollows that differentiate them from their primary counterparts. This is to be expected as, expected as primary hollows develop naturally with senescence and secondary hollows are surgically induced and often altered by additional interventions, fat transfer or filler injection, and subsequent drug modification with hyaluronidase or steroid injection. These secondary depressions tend to be better circumscribed, deeper, and with steeper transitions from peak to valley. Also, they lack the noted characteristic appearance uh, patterns, the tear trough, nasodrugal groove, orbital or palpebral groove, and transitions which tend to be similar from patient to patient with primary periorbital hollows. Finally, and of significance, secondary hollows tend towards a more inferior extent into the upper midface than primary hollows. We surmise that these differences may be related to tissue atrophy from the initial surgery or the effects of hyaluronidase and or steroid injections if these interventions were performed. When one considers the more extensive dimensions and depth of secondary periorbital hollows, it becomes clear why their management with injectable filler and fat transfer, which we feel in these cases are techniques best suited for refinement rather than structural foundation, are potentially troublesome. The concerns led us to attempt effacement of these depressions with an alternate route. We selected dermis fat grafts as a mean of secondary periorbital hollow filling because historically they have been shown efficacy as tissue grafts. Dermis fat grafts are documented to provide great utility in replacing and augmenting eyelid and orbital volume when enophthalmus and superior sulcus deficits exist. They have also they are also effective when placed as a posterior eyelid spacer in lower lid retraction surgery and have demonstrated a robust survival and retention rate. Little detailed the implantation of dermis fat grafts to address facial contour issues in both primary and secondary facelift surgery. This is conceptually similar to what we report here in for infraorbital and for inferior, inferior periorbita. As this current report as in the current report, Little noted excellent results, but primarily with facelift discard specimens as the graft source. This is different to the approach reported here, which used abdominal grafts exclusively. Irrespective of graft location, both studies subjectively validated the utility of dermis fat grafts to enhance, enhance facial contour uh, deficits. Historically, before considering dermal onlygrafts for secondary periorbital hollow effacement, we would routinely fill such hollows with hyaluronic acid gel fillers or consider offering fat transfer. As in the current study population in this report, most patients with these problems had already had these interventions with poor outcomes. In this instance, they would rarely would patients agree to fat transfer again, and results obtained by refilling with hyaluronic acid gel material were universally fraught with unsatisfactory outcomes with the recurrence of edema, dyschromia, and persistent contour irregularities. We anecdotally concluded that correcting secondary periorbital hollows with filler or fat was not 
a consistent or liable procedure because these patients do not need a refinement, but rather more substantial volume. Hence, the concept of using dermal uh, dermis fat grafts in these patients arose. Further substantiating this approach was the blind injection of filler liquid fat into facial tissue, especially in discarded planes from previous surgery, can lead to vascular occlusion, complications such as visual loss, and tissue necrosis. This is not the case with an open approach surgical procedure where there is no chance of inadvertent uh, intravascular compromise. The tissue planes for placements of dermal only grafts vary depending on location. A common factor among patients with secondary periorbital hollows is that the nasalmost hollow, i.e. the tear trough, cons consists of thin skin over bone. To avoid potential contour deficits, we decided to place grafts subperiosteally in this location. Because this is an avascular plane, the periosteum above was perforated in multiple locations to enhance graft blood supply. Although we were concerned that subperiosteal grafts may risk graft viability, all, patient, all patients who were grafted in this location exhibited substantial subjective, according to patient and surgeon, and volumetric enhancement. Two recent studies substantiate this conclusion with similar placement of non-autologous tissue substrate, alloderm, in this location. Also, in this area of nasal hollows, dermis only was implanted and the underlying fat removed to avoid potential fat necrosis and subsequent inflammation in this less vascular plane. Finally, in two patients, the graft was folded on itself to improve outcome. Although both patients did well, definitive conclusions on volumetric graft enhancement by this means cannot be drawn. To treat more lateral hollows where thicker tissue was present, less chance of contradeformity, and a natural fat pad, the SUF, exists, we placed dermal only grafts in the deep and more vascular preperiosteal plane just over the periosteum and below the SUF. The dermis was positioned anteriorly facing the SUF to create a uniform surface to avoid irregularities. To make the host pocket continuous, a slit was made at the transition between the sub and preperiosteal planes. This allowed uniformity, <clears throat> this allowed uniform graft continuity of the graphs. Two interesting questions arose while reviewing the data collected in this report. First, was periorbital hollow effacement enhanced in the two patients who had hard palate grafts placed for concurrent lower eyelid retraction as an adjunct to surgery? It is known that palate grafts are placed as posterior lamellar spacergrafts to help recess or elevate the lower eyelid when cicatrice exists. Theoretically, when the lower lid is elevated, the contours of the lower eyelid cheek junction can change and may appear smoother and throw fewer shadows. In addition, as recently suggested, that part of the eyelid elevating effect of palate grafts may include some form of volumetric enhancement. If true, this too can impart, impart changes on the lower eyelid cheek interface and the appearance of periorbital hollows. Although this is certainly an interesting topic of, topic of debate, we cannot give a definitive answer from the data analyzed in this report. When evaluating the final post-surgical outcomes in these two patients, their subjective results were not better than the remaining study population. The other question of interest is whether dermal onlay grafts can be an appropriate primary treatment for lower uh, blepharoplasty. As a general response, we would recommend dermal onlay grafts only as a last resort. As stated, transposing or injecting fat are both less invasive uh, are, and proven adjuncts for successful primary lower blepharoplasty with periorbital hollow effacement. In the rare case where there is no fat to transpose or harvest, 
uh, nofatch are transposed or harvest and graft, <clears throat> a dermal on the graft can be considered, but this is far more complicated and requires a second surgical site or donor site, an implantation of a graft in these in a and implantation of a graft. In these instances, injecting filler may be a better option unless the patient is averse to this treatment or desires a more permanent solution. Although we feel that the results of this procedure are promising, there are study limitations which allow only preliminary conclusions to be drawn. First, the patient number is small. Over the time frame of this report, we deferred surgery on several patients because patients' expectations for this type of procedure must be mitigated. All patients are forewarned of the delicate and unpredictable nature of tissue grafts, of the complexity of this form of eyelid revision surgery, and of the unknown biologic healing response postoperatively. A 50% improvement in outcome was stated as the best case scenario. If there was hesitancy about this expectation, surgery was not suggested. This in part explains the small patient number and potentially the 85% stated procedure satisfaction, which may have been lower if selection criteria were more lenient. Second, the average follow-up period was only nine months. It has been reported that with primary eyelid surgery, procedure follow-up is a limiting factor in stating long-term conclusions. This is certainly more valid with revision procedures. It is unknown if periorbital hollow effacement would persist or what patient satisfaction would be two years or more after surgery. Given this, these short-term results are promising. Third, assessment of outcome by patient and surgeon alike was non-anonymous and purely subjective. Because this was a retrospective review of our early experience with this procedure, no quantitative and blighted evaluation of outcome was pre-planned. While these initial results, with these initial results, an appropriate next step would be a prospective analysis of the procedure with formal volumetric quantitative assessment of periorbital hollow effacement. However, for fat transposition with lower blepharoplasty, which in many surgeons' view is, con is the contemporary standard of care for lower blepharoplasty, only one study validating outcome in this way has been published. Conclusions. Secondary periorbital hollows pose a complex and challenging problem. Their effacement with hyaluronic gel fillers uh, or fat transfer are less invasive options than the dermal onlygraph procedure described in this report. However, our experience is that these interventions are problematic. That notwithstanding, attempting less invasive options as a first choice is reasonable and may be prudent. Should this course of treatment fail, remaining options are limited. In these recalcitrant cases that we are, the, are where we believe dermal onlygraphs can play a role as a rescue procedure if patient expectations are realistic. Again, I'd like to thank uh, the Aesthetic Surgery Journal, uh, the editorial, uh, staff and reviewers uh, for accepting this manuscript. Uh, I hope it is useful.